Warning, some things in our podcast may not be suitable for everyone. We talk about cults and murders, and due to the nature of our podcast, may use harsh language at times. Viewer's discretion is advised. And also, we can't pronounce anything. Hi guys, and welcome to Cults and Crime. I'm one of your hosts, Jamie. And I'm your other host, Nicole. So guys, before we start our episode, really quickly, we're going to be on Vocal again on Thursday. Vocal is a cool website where it brings podcasters to you guys. It's live. It's fun. The whole night of Thursday is a true crime day. So there's a many other podcasters involved as well. So if you guys want to go watch us, we're going to put links on our Instagram. And if you guys have any questions, feel free to DM us at cults in crime pod at Instagram. Yeah. And, um, just really quick at one more thing about the vocal is it's all really interactive. So you have the opportunity to message us as we're podcasting, as we're actually talking about cases. So you can ask us any questions you've been burning to ask us, or if something doesn't make sense to you, you can ask us in the comments in real time, which I found really interesting. Oh yeah. It was really, really cool. We had one guy who was kind of funny. He was like, it's me, the Zodiac talk. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I was like, well, I hope not because you're not on our list of suspects. all right and if you missed our very very first vocal live don't worry because you can go in vocal and you can watch it right now yeah guys so enough with the vocal stuff now we're going to be talking about the waco siege this is the second part of the one we started last week so if you guys want to know about what led up to the siege go ahead and check out the episode from last week Okay, so the siege started on Sunday, February 28th, 1993. 1993 is the year me and Nicole were born, by the way. Mm-hmm. Coincidence? I don't think so. So the Bureau of Alcohol, I Tobacco- think so. <laughs> the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms tried to give a search warrant to David Koresh in the Branch Davidian compound. This, ser- this search warrant was met with gunfire. Four ATF agents were killed in this exchange and 18 were wounded. So we don't know how many were killed or injured on the side of the Branch Davidians. And the Branch Davidians, the reason this happened was because the Branch Davidians knew the ATF were on their way. This is the first really big failure in the Waco siege. So the operation was codenamed Trojan. It was codenamed Operation Trojan. The mission was to execute a search warrant and be in and out within a day. They were supposed to get close to the compound under the cover of a horse trailer before the Branch Davidians even knew they were there. Unfortunately, the Branch Davidians were tipped off. So they were in town, you know, and this was a hundred people. So it was a large group of people, which I get it because the compound had hundreds, a hundred odd, some odd people in there. So like they had to have enough agents to control the situation, but it's hard to keep that many people going into a smaller town under wraps. A mailman just happened to be walking by and asked what they were doing there. And that's what tipped him off because the mailman was a Branch Davidian. He was actually related. He was a brother of Rachel, David Koresh's uh, wife, his actual legal wife. So, and the agents even knew this was happening. So another, so as the agents were entering the trailer, one of the agents, um, Baltelaire, he remembers another agent saying, if they know they're com- we're coming, why are we going? And as they exited the trailer, they were met with gunfire from several different locations on the compound. They were shooting out of windows. They were shooting out of 
doorways, literally everywhere they looked, they saw gunfire. Oh my god. Wow. I know another agent, um, Rison Hoover, describes his gunshot because he was shot during this incident. He said, mine actually sort of cauterized itself. You could see smoke coming out of my wound because the bullet was actually lodged in there. And he's he lived, he survived, thank goodness. But like I said, four agents died and 18 were wounded. That's an insane amount of people. Oh, yeah. And it's like, it could have been many more. Like, they were actually quite lucky. And, like, I don't know if it's because the Vanch Davidians didn't have a lot of experience with firearms or they didn't have enough time to prepare. But, like, if they would have had a booby trap, because they had um, quite a lot of ammo and gunpowder and stuff like that, if they would have set, like, a booby trap, they could have killed, you know, 50, 60 people easy. So you're saying it had the potential to be even worse. It really did. So the FBI took over as the lead agency in order to resolve this standoff. During the shootout, David Kresh was wounded in the hip and left wrist. And the Texas Rangers were also briefly involved, but the FBI blocked them from continuing because the FBI, when they come on the scene, they take over. So the next day, Monday, March 1st, President Clinton endorses negotiations as a solution for the Waco siege. He is personally... He's supposed to be personally advised of Indiana changes, and you'll see like throughout um, the standoff, he's actually a decent big, a decently big part of this. So throughout the day, they kind of negotiate with them, and the FBI does a decent job on this day, and they actually get ten smaller children to be released from the compound. The FBI. So there's a really big, like the really large thing that happened with the Waco siege and why it went not the way it's supposed to is because there was kind of this lack of communication because there was still local law enforcement involved. It was just the FBI in charge and like ATF was still there. So the FBI deployed armored vehicles and they made a perimeter around the compound blocking the branch Davidians from escaping. But this also, you know, these people are scared. They're holed up in this compound and now you have armored vehicles surrounding them. Well, I get it. So I guess, was this whole raid, was it to get everybody or was it just to get the one particular person? I guess that's what I'm confused by. It was to get David Koresh mostly. Like, you know, if they went in there and they found other things, they could arrest other people in the compound. But the main warrant was for David Koresh. So doesn't that seem a little like overkill to have all those different agencies going after just one person? I, I can see how that'd be scary. I would be scared. Well, at first it was only local law enforcement and the ATF. The FBI only came after the shootout. But it is quite a lot of people, but I get it. You know, think about it. If they would have sent two, three guys instead of, you know, the hundred guys they ended up sending, they go. those guys would have been killed and everyone would have ran immediately. And then he would have been on the run. It's one of those situations where if you have the resources to protect yourself by sending in larger groups, you do that. You spend those resources. And well, the yeah. ATF has that resource. Yeah, of course. I get that. But it's definitely terrifying. You know, he's been, at this point, he's been preaching that the group is going to bring out the apocalypse and it's going to be through the American government coming to get them. He's been saying that to his followers for like months now. And hey, look what happens. The American government is literally on their doorsteps trying to get them. Which I'm sure to a lot of his members, they thought, oh, look, here it is. His prophecy coming to f- for fulfillment. When in all actuality, exactly. he w- he knew all along which was going to happen. And he preached that knowing well, that not, the Raiders would get it raided. It's not hard to 
sit there and be like, okay, well, I'm abusing children. I'm stocking large amounts of ammo and guns that I'm illegally not supposed to have. You know, it's not hard for them to think, okay, maybe one day the police are going to come to our door. I'm sure he didn't anticipate this large of a reaction, though. Like, who could have? This is one of the first times this happened on U.S. soil. So there's no way he could have anticipated this large of a reaction from the U.S. government. This is actually... So the reason this is such a big incident is because it was the first. But also, to this day, like, it happened in Texas. Texas is the home of people who love guns and people who love the death penalty. That's just facts. If you're from Texas and you don't like either of those things, please hit me up. I'd love to be proven wrong. But those are kind of... Well, that and barbecue and big hair, right? What else is Texas known for? Oh my god, Jamie, just just stop. Stop profiling all Texans. <laughs> Hashtag not all Texans. But, you know, like they're known for loving their firearms. That's just something that people who are from Texas, if you think about Texas, that's what you think about. I think everything's bigger in Texas. That's what I think of. But uh, yeah, now you do get the firearm thing as well. Oh, we're studying the death penalty in one of my classes right now. So, like, that's what I think of. <laughs> but that's situational, I'm sure. But, you know, so the U.S. government going to a man's house to take his firearms and his guns to this day is not something that sits right in the minds of people that live in Texas or even elsewhere. People that are really big proponents of the Second Amendment, they look at this as this is why I have my guns. This is why I need to stockpile ammo because the U.S. government has and will again, you know, go take my firearms away from me just for having them. Yeah, but that's not the only reason why they're arresting him in particular. You know, I, well, I tend to be a little bit more like, you know, the government can kind of stay out of it. Like, who am I to say how many guns you have or type of guns you have? Like, I get it, but they weren't arresting him because of his guns. They were arresting him because of all the other illegal things he was doing. And it just so happened he also had a giant stockpile of guns. Illegal guns. Illegal guns. (laughs) Yeah, but it's just one of those things where if you really believe that guns are a right, you believe no matter the type, no matter the quantity, that it should be legal. So people look at this as proof that, you know, the government will take your guns. So even to say, like, there's museums and the museum is there to show people that it has happened, that the government has tried to take guns and it went poorly. So... Obviously, having the armored vehicles make a perimeter on the compound did not sit well with Koresh. This made him really angry and agitated. And as part of the strategy, they also cut the phone lines to the compound for all calls except those made to the negotiators. This made Koresh feel even more isolated, which generally when you're doing a, like, um, a hostage negotiation kind of situation, that's what you want. You want them to feel isolated. Yeah, but I guess I think of like a wild animal back into a corner eventually they're going to lash out. And that's what I feel like they're doing with Kresh. See, they treated Kresh like he was holding these people hostage. They didn't think that those people wanted to be there. So the next day, March 2nd, as part of negotiations with the police, Kresh makes a one-hour audio tape to distribute to a national broadcaster. They broadcast the tape over the Christian network radio, and in the tape... (coughs) Sorry. They broadcast the tape over the Christian Broadcasting Network, and Koresh claims to have spoken to God where God just told him to wait. The FBI say that their goal is to talk him out no matter what, but contrary to this talk-out strategy, Clinton employs 
military vehicles for safety purposes. To be fair, like the FBI did request those vehicles. So it's not all on Quint Clinton. But like I said, they had a really bad, like they weren't talking to their nego negotiators. The people who are making the perimeters and doing all these tactical moves weren't talking to their negotiators. So they were really leaving their negotiators out to dry with crash. Which isn't that one of the things they want to do is form a bomb, uh, is to form some kind of a bond with them. Exactly. Like when you're doing negotiations, what you do is like you want that person to think they can speak to you. You want them to think, hey, there's no way out except for me. I'm your one way out. And they want to be like, I'm the most powerful person in this situation. So you need to talk to me in order to, you know, get a way out or figure out a way to do things in this. Where, like they, like I said, they left them out to dry. They were making all these tactical moves, all these military moves. And the people are saying, they're like, no, 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 just come out. We'll, just you come out, we'll, we won't arrest you, we won't shoot you, just come out. And then you, they see 50 guys with armed guns pointing at the door. Which would be a little contradictory. So the next day, Wednesday, March 3rd, the FBI says that they will drop the murder charges against two elderly women that Koresh is currently facing. And Koresh, after speaking to negotiators, accounts for a failure to surrender. As agreed, he says, dealing now with his father and not with your bureaucratic system of government. Damn. <laughs> Like, they talk for hours and hours and hours, but mostly it's just these rambling sermons where he talks about unlocking the seven seals and interpreting God's intentions and that this is going to be the end of the world and they're harboring in the end of the world. So is he trying to say that them not giving up is his way of saving the world? Is well, that he's what he's trying to say? He's saying God's telling him not to. Oh, Okay. And then, so at night, like really late into the night, the FBI is moving around these vehicles. It's being really loud. And Crash is on the phone with them. And he says, you'll have to look at some of the pictures of the little ones that end up perishing. Damn, he really used those kids, huh? <laughs> I'm skipping March 4th because they just, it's just more negotiations. So on March 5th, a nine-year-old Heather Jones leave the com leaves the compound wearing a note pinned to her jacket. On the note, her mom says that once the children are out, the, ch the adults will die. So the FBI asks Koresh, like, oh, are you going to commit suicide? And he denies it. The FBI concludes that the David, the Branch Davidians have a one-year supply of food, including an abundance of military rations, MREs, they're ready-to-eat meals, and they're nasty. And, you know, it's just more sermon, 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 violence, violence, violence. And nothing incredibly helpful. You know, the next few days, Crush is still just agitated and agitated. And the FBI wants to raid the compound, but they're being told to wait. And Crush is, you know, telling them that the apocalypse is coming. And if they try to enter the building, they're all going to kill themselves. And they're going to kill, take them with them. He's just really, really agitated. So on March 7th, talks with Crush and other members of the compound are just going around in circles and circles. And they're asking for the FBI to deliver milk for the children, which the FBI refuses to do this. They are, their point is, if you want milk for your children, you need to release them. Well, yeah. And Koresh is refusing to release the children, and they're refusing to give milk to the children. So Koresh says the reason he won't release the children is because the only children left on the compound are his biological children. Okay, so but at the same time, you know, not giving them milk is not going to kill these children. 
you know, well, I get it. They do have rations. Like, like I said, they have rations. They have MREs. But depends on how young the kids are. Some kids, like, depending on how young they are, they can't have solid foods yet, you know? Yeah, but... They're, are they asking for formula or are they asking for regular milk? Um, as far as I know, it's regular milk. But yes. you, as so that's not see, necessary is, um, to survive. Yeah, but you know, kids, milk. I don't know. Like to me, it's it's one of those things where this could have been a point where you can make a branch with David about this. Be like, yes, of course, we'll give milk for the kids. Because. So David had all these weird rules about, especially like the end few months of the cult where you couldn't eat certain things. If you did, then you were like Satanist or you didn't believe in him. So he did this to test people's faith. You know, if I tell you, you can't have yellow, anything yellow, and then I see you wearing yellow, then you're not that motivated to be here and, you know, follow me. Whereas I see you avoiding yellow like the plague, that means that you do are willing to follow me no matter what stupid things I say. So the very next day, Monday, March 8th, they get an update on how Crush's wounds are healing. He's healing really well, you know, no signs of infections. And the FBA actually does end up delivering six gallons of milk to the compound. So they do this because they have a memo that comes out later on. Like this didn't come out at the time, but later on through a Freedom Information Act, they find out that there was a memo that went forth saying, we can't be violent with these people because if we do, it's just going to make Crush look, you know, he's going to validate him. So, um, David sends out a videotape of the children on the compound. So they don't want these, they don't want the tapes to be released to the media because it's just, it's a picture, like it's David Koresh sitting surrounded by children. He talks about how he's wounded and he talks about how all, like it was like six kids and all those six kids are his biological children. And the reason he won't let them go is because those are his kids. On Tuesday, March 9th, they actually end up cutting off the electricity to the compound. And this really stubs negotiation. Crash says he will not talk until the power is restored. And they continue moving armored vehicles around the compound. And they see weapons. So they start... The, Dave, the Branch Davidians, they start having weapons being shown to the people on the outside. Like They start putting weapons on windowsills and out little like holes in the walls and out the doors, just, I don't even know why they do this. You know, they have armored vehicles, you have a 22 rifle. It's a show of force, like they're trying to show that they have weapons too, I get it. Yeah, and it, like, so on several occasions, like, they are just taunting the Branch Davidians at this point. They're like shooting bright lights in them at nighttime so they can't sleep. They start blaring like music and stuff so they can't, you know, so they can't sleep or they just really annoyed. And they end up shutting back. They should, they end up putting the power back on for a few hours just to try to get the negotiations started again, but end up on March the 10th shutting the power off again because at this point there's no negotiations happening. Like there's nothing helping them at this point. So do you think that all these things that they were doing helped or hurt? In my opinion, they hurt. But like I said, they treated they treated the situation like Crush was holding these people hostage. Everything they did is for someone... Like, they just... Everything they did was trying to get Koresh to come out. So the problem is they really only speak to Koresh. 
And they speak to Koresh in a way like he's holding these people hostage. And in my mind, that's like the number one thing that went wrong. But also, you're trying to convince people that if they leave the compound, they'll be safe. When they can actively see armored vehicles, like trained men with guns. You know, they put up tents. They have choppers flying over. Like, none of that stuff makes you feel safe or makes you want to leave a location. And also, Crush has already made it so they didn't trust the government. So those promises made by the government, like, weren't, were falling on deaf ears, basically. So um, on March 12th, they actually end up having a doctor, like a local doctor, consult with David Koresh over the phone. Because, you know, like I said, there are quite a few injured people in the compound. And the kids are, I'm sure, not happy because it's Texas with no electricity. And on this is the day where they say they're going to actually cut the electricity off for sure. He does this because he wants... The FBI does this because they want, and I'm going to quote them here, he wants those inside the compound to experience the same wet and cold nights as the tactical personnel outside. Okay, that seems kind of like bullshit, but okay. Yeah, and the Branch of Indians are like, this is a huge setback for us. How could you cut off the power to our house? And the justification for cutting off the power for it to be a cold night of maximum effort is, in my opinion, dumb. It's just dumb. His like, reasoning is, is what upsets me. Oh, well, Crash I want it to be the fair. FBI. The FBI. Well, I want them to have the same kind. I want them to have the same, you know, uncomfortableness as the tactical workers. These people haven't done anything wrong. These people are victims. And you're treating well, them like they're the ones that you're trying to get. Like, they're. it's not fair. That's not right. Yeah, it's just, it's one of those situations where this is a good... This is a good thing to do. You So you want him to feel like he's not in control of the situation. If you're giving him the food he requests, if you're having the power on, if he has access to telephone lines, he has the power. Well, he thinks he has the power. But also a bad thing, because there are women and children inside, as well as, you know, David Koresh and the rest of the followers. There's a lot of people. They actively want to be there. And you're showing them that you're willing to take away food and power. So you're really just giving Koresh, you're giving him a leg to stand on. He's sitting there like proselytizing to these people. Look what the government's doing to us. Look what they're taking away from us. Look what they're doing. I told you they would do this. So they're just further proving his point at this point. And I don't know the difference between negotiations when you're negotiating with someone who has active followers in a situation or you're negotiating with someone who is holding people hostage but I feel like they just didn't, they didn't form the negotiations around trying to get the whole group to leave. And they didn't take into account the beliefs of the group as well. Like the really radical religious beliefs of the group. Yeah. And they probably should have, I would imagine. So the next few days is just people being freezing and cold in the building. Um, David Koresh's mother gets an attorney, and that attorney is now representing representing him in the situation. The FBI continues to have these bright illumination night lights at night. The FBI continues to have these bright lights on the compound so that people can't sleep, and this is putting a lot of pressure on the people inside. You know, you're cold, you're wet. You're, some of them are hungry because you're eating MREs and MREs are just straight nasty. I cannot stress this enough. I've like, Tori's let me try them. 
Oh my gosh. Freeze-dried meat is disgusting. The smell is disgusting. And even the vegetarian... The vegetarian ones are better, but they're just... Oh gosh, they're all nasty. So, on Monday, March 15th, the FBI changes their negotiation strategies a little bit. But they really do want a peaceful resolution, which is what you want out of any sort of negotiation situation. So they tell him that they will not listen to any more what they like to call um, Bible babble. Which I'm sure made him feel very comfortable. Yes, but they also get a Branch Davidian named Wayne Martin to meet outside the compound to talk things out. This doesn't really go anywhere, but this is the first time where they actually got an adult to come out of the compound. They let him go back in because they want to have that trust, but, you know, it's better than nothing. It's a start. Yeah. Next day, they only get a negotiator, and that's 46 minutes for the whole day on the March 16th. It's only, like, 46 minutes. So that's letting you know, like, this is not going well. This is... This situation is deteriorating. <laughs> Anyone who looking around can see this. Like, this is... You don't want people to be in a negotiation situation for this many days and then only be able to talk to them for 46 minutes at a time. On March 17th, David Koresh refuses to allow them to have another face-to-face conversation. They urge Koresh to surrender. They challenge him in sincerity and they call him to take some positive action. So they do this because he says, like, so he says something about, like, they think that he thinks he's God. And... It's not clear whether Kresh actually believed this or not. It was just saying it. And they're convinced that he's saying that he believes he's God, but he doesn't actually believe this. So at this point on, all their information they're running through is under the idea that Kresh is faking it. They're faking his um, religious beliefs. So this is... So you're trying to tell me this all turned... You're trying to tell me this all turned into a game of basically chicken, right? Yeah. You know, at this point, they're like, oh, there's no way that he thinks that he's God because of, like, he said, he just said something stupid during one of the negotiations. So at this point, they're treating him not like a crazy person or not like someone who's going under religious beliefs, but as someone who just wants power, which, you know, he does want power, but also he, as like, as far as I can tell, was actually very religious. And he really believed the, me- the message that he was sending out. Which I don't say that about a lot of these cult leaders, but David Koresh is definitely one of the ones where I believe that he actually thought that he actually thought that his religion was correct. So the next day, they just kind of <laughs> talk on the loudspeaker again, and they're just yelling at him on the loudspeaker that he needs to come out and let people come out. This doesn't do anything. <laughs> So Koresh's attorney starts sending Koresh letters, and the FBI actually delivers these letters to Koresh, which is kind of cool. Well, you legally have to. They have a right to an attorney, right? You can't withhold that. Well, he's not arrested yet. So the rights that police... Unless the police have you... Like, the police can keep people out of a certain situation. They have the right to be like, no, if you go in there, you're going to get killed. We're not going to allow you to go in. So if he had, and they don't have any, like, they're not male people. They have no legal obligation to deliver mail, if that makes sense. Your right to attorney only exists after you are officially arrested. And at this point, Crush wasn't arrested. So Crush 
on March 19th says that he's ready to come out and face the music. And two Branch Davidians come out of the compound. The next day, another Branch Davidian, Rita Riddle, comes out of the compound. And on Sunday, the March 21st, two more women come out of the compound. Crush says to negotiators, I told you that my God says wait. But these people came out anyways. So the FBI starts playing really loud, loud Tibetan chants over the loudspeaker system. For and what Koresh, purpose? Wait, wait, for what purpose? Lack of like lack of communication. I can't stress enough that all this is just a lack of communication. And Koresh says, because of the loud music, no one's coming out anymore. You know, it kind of seems like he's just trying to hold on to the little bit of power he has left. Yeah, but you need to let him think he has that power. Because if not, people start dying. <laughs> you know, when it's truly a no-win situation, that's when things are deteriorate. You need to let him think that he has the power to let people go. And that it's his decision to let people go. Someone like, someone like Koresh, who has all these people following him. So the first thing he's going to do is start releasing people that he doesn't think are true believers because he doesn't want people on the inside hurting what's happening and i think that's why he let those people go is because he for some maybe they ate something the wrong thing or they wore the wrong color and that made him think that they don't believe in him as much as everyone else and that's why he let them go so on march 22nd there's more complaints about the loud music and negotiators tell him that there is just the fbi tactical agents and that they have no part in it which i don't think they did i honestly think it was just a lack of communication during a strategy meeting, they say that if there is no de-escalation, de that they're going to recommend introducing tear gas to the compound. When they still have hostage victims? Well, none of them are hostages. Everyone is in there who wants to be in there. Yeah, but you stated several times that these people, that they went on the premise that these people are hostages. So that's what I'm saying, Jane. Oh, yeah, but they do that now. Like, think about it. If someone takes over a bank, they'll put tear gas. Tear gas won't kill you. It's non-lethal. But it is going to make it really uncomfortable for the people holding you hostage. Yep. And they continue to do this. Loud music. Bright lights. They start talking to him over a loudspeaker in order to try to get people to come out. And, like, this is really just not helping anyone. I can't stress this enough. And it ends to the point where the FBI starts verbally assaulting Koresh and calling him a liar and a coward. Oh my god, no, 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 no. No. <laughs> On March 25th, the FBI give him, gives him an ultimatum. He needs to release 10 to 20 people by 4 p.m. Or they will take some action. At 4 p.m., armored vehicles move into the compound and start removing like motorcycles and, and go-karts. On Friday, March 26th, on Friday, March 26th, lights, music, and helicopter activities continue throughout the night and the FBI issues yet another ultimatum and the FBI starts clearing out like anything else during on the front of the compound like anything left over any sort of debris like any sort of debris on Sunday March 28th which is a day after their last ultimatum they do another ultimatum on that day Koresh says that he has no intentions to die and he's waiting for word from God so they send out the um, branch Davidian send out another videotape on this day and it shows 19 children looking really tired but 
overall kind of like healthy. They don't really look malnourished. They look like they've been taken care of, but it's still 19 children that are all apparently Koresh's biological children. I'm sure they were his biological children. He had like 20 wives. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So on Tuesday, April 1st, like I skipped through a bunch of days, but nothing really happened on those days. Sorry, guys. I'm trying to make this as interesting as possible, but it is a lot of just weird stuff packed in. Okay, so they allow people to go into the compound, which is like these are Crush's attorneys. And the Crush's, the attorneys come out and they say the Davidians will leave either on April 2nd or 10th, depending on the Passover observance. So two independent religious experts, like they go on a talk show and they start interpreting the book of Revelations and implying it to the standoff which that's not helpful for everyone else around. Like the people on the compound, as far as like the ATF agents, FBI and local police, they can see those broadcasts. Obviously the branch Davidians can't, they don't have access to television. They don't have access to phone lines and they don't have any like power at this point. But like, this is not, it doesn't help the situation and just kind of escalates fear outside of the building. So on Sunday, April 4th, the lawyers meet again with Koresh and he re- he talks again that Evelyn will come out after Passover, which I'm like, they said either the second or the 10th. So obviously the second, no one got released and nothing happened. The FBI continues the assault with the music and the lights. So that doesn't help either, but they kind of do lead them alone during most of this. So on Friday, April 9th, the day before the original we're going to leave by this date as far as Passover goes. Crush sends a letter to the FBI saying the heavens are calling you to judgment. And he sends over a few other letters, but this is the one that's like the most, just the most like threatening. This is just a really threatening letter to me. So they give the letters to um, two experts and the experts say he's possibly psychotic and he has no intentions of leaving voluntarily. The FBI finalizes their plans to use tear gas on the compound. So on April 10th, like I said, the day where Koresh said it's either the 2nd or the 10th where we will be leaving the compound, they do not leave the compound. I... Did we all see that coming? I saw that coming. Nicole, you see that coming? Yeah, I saw that coming. (laughs) I know at this point, it's like, man, when are you guys going to leave? So on Easter Sunday, April 11th, which by the way, we are recording this podcast the day before Easter. So this is, we're right on time for this horrible, horrible incident. But, um, they negotiate, they negotiate, they want three more branch Davidians to leave, three more branch Davidians do not leave, and the government starts, the governor of Texas starts getting involved. This will be great for my political campaign. <laughs> oh yeah, so on April 12th, they have a really big meeting, like with the higher ups, and they, they're saying things like, why not now? Why, why are we going to wait? They want to take more tactical action. They present the tear gas plan. As a, not as an all-out assault, but as a tactical whereby gas will be inserted in stages, initially onto only one small area of the compound. The goal was for them to be able to exit through an uncontaminated portion of the compound. 
And they also decide that they should cut off the water supply at some point to the compound. So at this point, they have clean water. Like, it's very cold because there's no electricity, but they do have water. So on April 12th, most of the afternoon, Crush bombards negotiators over the phone with what they like to call Bible babble, something we talked about earlier. And he says he's not coming out until God tells him to. So Clinton is getting more and more involved at this point. Like I said earlier, he is being any type of action that's being taken place. He's being briefed on. But at this point, Clinton still thinks this is they need to talk them out of this. Which is something I agree to as well. Yeah, and but the FBI is telling him like, no, we're at an impasse. We need there's we need to do something here. Something needs to change. Okay, so on April 14th, Cress says he will leave the compound, but only after he's written a manuscript explaining the seven seals. So the tire-ups once again meet, and they talk about the tear gas plan, where they actually talk to a few experts about this, about its effect on children. So, and I quote, although there has been no laboratory, and I quote here, Although there has been no laboratory test performed on children relative to the effects of tear gas, anecdotal evidence was convincing that there would be no permanent injury. That seems safe. Yeah, and they are talking about how the Branch of Indians are probably running out of water as well at this time. And they like make they just make predictions on how long they can hold out with no water. You know, like and they say they could hold out for up to a year. And once again, they consider the tear gas plan. So nothing happens for a few days except for on the 16th, Caress tells the negotiators that he finished his manuscript. And then on the 17th, and then on the 17th, the FBI actually gets their tear gas plan approved, but only as a cursory review, leaving tactical decisions to those at WECO. So basically, like, if you want to use it, you can. And on the 18th, they actually tell Clint, like President Clinton about this plan. And he says, yeah, he said, I, yes, I concur. So April 19th is a big day. So they call the Davidians and they notify them that there will be a tear gas assault. They also read this message over the loudspeaker, advising the Davidians that they are under arrest and should come out. So they insert gas through the comp, like through a nasal hose on a boom, which is basically just a big hose that is kind of, it's a little controllable. As the gas starts to fill up, the the Branch Davidians start shooting. Because of the gunfire, the the FBI deploys Brady vehicles and it starts ferret rounds through the windows. They report that the entire building is being gassed up. So they infer, they first start in putting the gas on the first floor and then they put it in on the second floor. So the FBI calls for more and more gas and they start putting more and more gas in the home and they're being shot at. But there is like really, really high winds, so the gas isn't exactly staying in the house like they wanted it to. So at 11.45, part of the building actually collapses. And at 12.07, the Branch Davidians start stimulating fires on three or more different locations in the compound. An observer says a male started a fire in the front of the building. So nine Branch Davidians flee the compound after the fires are started. And the FBI hears gunfire coming from the compound. So this makes the FBI think the Branch Davidians are either killing themselves or trying to kill the people on the outside of the building. And at this point, the whole building is engulfed in flames. 
So the FBI ends up having to look for survivors and children in the afternoon, and they don't find any, anyone in the wreckage. You're, it's unpaused now. Okay, so part of the reason for the tear gas plan was they honestly believed that mothers would, and I'm going to quote him here, move heaven and earth to get their children to safety and bring them out. That didn't work. So they just kept pumping in tear gas to different pieces of the building. Like I said, their whole plan was to move them to move them up into one portion of the building and leave them only the chance to escape. No chance to go back somewhere else in the building. Like, this didn't work. And as the vehicles got closer and closer, they started putting grounds in the windows and the building started collapsing and then the building caught on fire. This is only a few hours after tear gas was launched. So the blazes started in the compound and it's not really quite sure what started the fires. Some people think the Branch Davidians started the fires in order to finally commit suicide. And others believe it was the pyrotechnic rounds done by the FBI. And I believe in the FBI even said that it was probably the rounds, but people don't quite know. So there's listening devices from the FBI where it says it indicates that the fires were started by the Branch Davidians, but like I said, pyrotechnic tear gas rounds definitely makes you think that there was probably a chance it was the FBI's fault. Agreed. Nine adults escaped the fire, but more than 70 people died. And this is like two dozen children as well in the building died. Many had died from smoke inhalation, but Koresh died from a gunshot wound to the head. So this is, to a lot of people that were following Koresh, this seemed like a really biblical thing that happened you have smoke filling up the air where you can't breathe and then fires coming up to get like fires spreading around you filling up around you this is basically what crush said was going to happen he said you know we're all gonna the revelation is going to happen and we're going to bring it in and then they're watching fire just all around them like people could have left the building they could have left through windows nine people got away 70 people didn't. 70 people chose to either stay in or accidentally stayed in and got stuck inside. I honestly think that a lot of them saw the flames and thought, finally, this is what Koresh had predicted. So, if you talk to people that had been there, like one of the nine, the nine people that left, they've done tons and tons of documentaries, YouTube videos, podcasts, uh, TV episodes and they've talked to these people and a lot of them still believe in Crush to this day. People still believe in Crush, which to me is the craziest thing about this whole situation. He promised them the book of revelations, you know, fire, brimstone, people being brought up to heaven, people being dragged down to hell, you know, demons on earth. And all they got was one fire. To me, that's what really shows the control he had over these people that even after his death he still has a few of them tricked and fooled so next week we're going to bring you guys a crime episode sorry for the extra long episode but 54 days is hard to cram into one but I'm glad we talked about it I'm glad it's over and I'm glad that you guys watched with us but we will see you guys next week for a new episode of Cults and Crime, where we talk about crime. And happy Easter, everybody. Happy quarantine. See you later. Happy Easter. Happy quarantine. Bye.
Production by Jamie. Production and editing by Nicole. Our intro music is Wrong by Dan Henning. Our background music is In Albany, New York by the 129ers.